0: Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Monday, June the 7th, and as we gather this day, we are in the Pentecost season, which is why when we're in the Word of God, we know the Holy Spirit is at work, and we do that today knowing the Lord is with us, and he will open our eyes not only to see the truth of the Word, which is true, but also that we can put on our Christ goggles and see Christ in 2 Kings chapter 5. And God continues to work through Elisha. Chapters 4 through 7 are amazing stories of how God works miracles to show that he will always provide and point them back to him. And if you ever wondered if God's going to provide again after chapter 4, wow, what a chapter, you'll see it today through a leper. But unlike in the Gospels, a Gospel of Luke chapter 17, where we don't know the 10 lepers' names, today we do. He puts a personal name to him, which reminds us that he knows your name and that he puts his mark on you. You've heard the story, but let's dig in again. The gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information. lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's word, we have the honor to have with us Dr. Thomas Egger, president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Egger, welcome to Thy Strong Word. It's great to be with you. Dr. Eger, this is our first time together, even though I had you in class 15 years ago, but the thing is, I'm very forgettable. So it's one of those realities. But you you recently have had many changes in your life, and can you spend uh, a few moments introducing yourself, your family, and the work that you do as president?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, Well, I am a a Lutheran pastor by training, uh, a graduate of Concordia Seminary St. Louis and was a pastor in northwest iowa for five years before being called back to the seminary to teach old testament in 2005 and um, we were the two of us were talking before uh before the show here a little bit and realized that uh, we both when we were seminarians lived in the same rental house in st louis and in that little rental house we uh we moved into that home and when my wife was pregnant with our first child during seminary and when we moved out we had already had our fourth child so we were very busy <laughs> in that house having children and uh and our our uh, fourth fourth child was born just before we moved up to Iowa to to take the call into the parish and uh and God has given us two more children after that so we have a big family six children my wife Tori and I do And uh, here recently, um, my my work has transitioned significantly. The seminary back in February called me to serve as the 11th president, succeeding Dale Meyer and his um, 15 years of wonderful leadership here at the seminary. So it's a great privilege now to take on this new role. I won't be um, parsing Hebrew verbs and uh, and reading Old Testament texts with students quite as much, which is sad to me, but it's a wonderful opportunity to um, continue to, to lead the really important work that's done here on this campus, which is to ground future church workers in the life-giving Word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ that, that um that's strengthens them um, in their own lives and also pours out through them into the lives of others. So we, we have a wonderful privilege uh, to work with, with um, the students that the church sends us year after year, and it really is a blessed time for them and for us to, um, to set apart this time here on campus as holy time of preparation and just immersion in God's Word and God's truth. And I,
0: thank you for that introduction. And it's a reminder for me and for you, our listeners, that there's always an opportunity to pray and also an opportunity to give thanks. And you said it so well that you know that is a time when you're at seminary for future pastors, deaconesses, leaders in the church. That it's a holy time where you're in, in you know, you're you're engulfed in God's word. You're you're reminded of your identity. You're formed as a servant. I remember that was a big statement when I was there. And uh, what a blessing it is to have uh, people like yourself leading us, um, forming our servants. And it's an opportunity for us to pray for you and an opportunity for um, for us to pray for our seminary students, our future pastors, our future deaconesses and the leaders in the church. So I've been thinking a lot about that and, and how I need to pray for that more as well. So that's my encouragement for everybody to pray for Dr. Eger, for our professors and for our students. So anything else Pastor, yeah. you want to share about yourself?
1: No, I think that's about it. I'm, I'm originally from Iowa. My wife and I are both originally from Iowa, and now we've been in St. Louis for for uh, more than half of our lives, so I guess we are also St. Louisans and a big Cardinals fans. So. Oh, wonderful.
0: So, uh, Hawkeyes or um, Cyclones?
1: Uh Hawkeyes. Yeah, <laughs> I grew up near Iowa City and my parents are both graduates of the U of I So we are Iowa Hawkeye fans.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. we'll, we'll pass Dr. Eger um, as we begin our time. Can you begin us in prayer?
1: Yes Gracious Lord God, you have looked upon us with kindness and fatherly love and in spite of our disobedience and rebellion, You have pursued us with your word. You have chosen your son to be our mighty Savior, sent him forth from heaven, gave him over to death on the cross, but have raised him up in victory from the grave. We thank you for the good news of hope and salvation that you have given us in our Savior. We thank you for the power of your word in our lives, and I thank you for this radio program. I thank you for the gift of the scriptures and the way that the scriptures go forth um, into people's lives through this format. And I pray for our time this afternoon, that you would give us joy in discussing your word, that you would give us your wisdom and insight, and that you would help us to see the way that your word points to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, Dr. Eger, today's story, true story, is is a story that we probably have heard quite often in our lives, um, especially those who went to church and Sunday school and uh, went to seminary, those kind of things. But the reality is, my first parish was in Wisconsin, near Milwaukee. And I remember we went through this story, and I was not terribly familiar with it. I knew it, but I never really dug into it. And I remember at the end of the study, at least half the class commented to me, I've never heard this story before, Pastor, and so I think sometimes we think we know the story and everyone knows the story, but the reality is, I think it's not as familiar as we as we thought it is. So, as we get to this, um, uh, can you give us some background? Of what leads us to this, or themes or thoughts that you have to help us out this morning?
1: Sure, sure. Well. Um, Historically, what's going on in the Old Testament at this point, God has placed his special chosen people, the people of his covenant and promise in the Holy Land, and he's given them um, a place and he's given them leaders uh, to lead them in the true worship of God. He put King David over them, but in the course of time, um, the kingdom was divided by rebellion and also, even more importantly, torn apart by the people's apostasy and looking to false gods. And so through this time, God continues to send them his prophets, men of God who bring his word and his, um, his, his warnings, but also his saving promises and power to the lives of the people. Um, this is a period of time, this period of the divided kingdom, where you have the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, And it takes place, especially our story is going to take place in that Northern kingdom of Israel, but it also has to do with one of the foreign nations to the North or the Northeast of, of Israel, the Northern kingdom. And that kingdom that is to the Northeast of them, the Bible calls Aram and our modern translations translate it. Some of them anyway, as Syria, it corresponds uh, roughly to the modern nation of Syria and, uh, It's a story here of a foreigner coming to Israel to find help and hope because he's heard about uh, the power and the graciousness of the God of Israel. And how he hears about that is an interesting part of the story. Um, He's going to hear about uh, God's power through a little girl. And it's interesting in the lead up to this, uh, the prophets that have been in focus in the story here leading up to this text are Elijah and Elisha. So two big names in the Old Testament. And the book of 2 Kings opens with the end of Elijah's ministry as a prophet. And in chapter 2, he's taken up to heaven in the fiery chariot, and he leaves Elisha as his successor. And the chapters after that establish Elisha as a legitimate prophet of God and show all of the ways that he's at work helping the people. Um, and it's especially the lowly that he's caring for. So he's caring for widows, he's caring for little children, uh, and he's, uh, he's doing great wonders and works of help and restoration um, to, to preserve God's people and as a testimony that he's a true prophet of God. And uh, now in our text, the focus shifts a little bit now to uh, to a foreign land, and uh, even in this foreign land, um, or to someone from this foreign land, Elisha, the prophet of God, is going to be the agent of God's God's help and mercy.
0: In chapter, I mean, thank you for that for that uh, overview because it can become very confusing. When you get to this point of Scripture, because you got 1st, 2nd Kings, right before that 1st, 2nd Samuel, you get confused in the history, and then you get 1st, 2nd Chronicles. Of Lots of names, yeah. right, a lot of names. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had a lot of guys kind of, because I'm the guy who reads this, and a lot of times they're like, yeah, Brady, you're not even close, but just keep going. You're not getting the names right, but just keep going. But anyways, it's it's a lot of fun to to hear that and to break it down in simplicity. The different kingdoms and something as simple as, here's a guy from outside of Israel um, who actually sees the grace of God in Israel, you know, and that, and that's a very helpful reality. At the same time, Elisha is there for the lowly, showing that the Lord is not just for a certain people or a certain class, but definitely there for the lowly, which, I don't know, I want to ask this now, can, how can we talk about Elisha as a type of Christ, or how would you describe this?
1: Yeah, well, um, he is, uh, he's a man of God, sent by God, And so he's like any prophet, he's one who brings warnings, but also promises and help. And um, I think Elisha's ministry, like Jesus's, is so characterized by the pairing of God's words of promises with acts that demonstrate that restorative love. And one of the most remarkable things about the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, think about all of his miracles, these great works of wonder and power um, that he that he worked in his in his earthly ministry. Not one of them was a mighty work of destruction, Um, with the one exception of the cursing of the fig tree. Uh, But all of the things that he did for people, and and even his works in nature like the spilling of the storm or the feeding of the 5,000, driving out demons, raising the dead, in all of these things, he's at work in wondrous ways to show his power to restore, to give life, to give provision. And uh, God worked through Elisha in very similar ways, um, he, he fed the hungry through his hand in miraculous ways and provided oil, uh, uh, for sustenance. He even raised the dead. So in the last chapter, just before our story here, he, he raises a widow's, uh, or he raises a woman's young son, uh, who has died. Elisha actually raises him from the dead. And in those ways, he foreshadows the wonder working ministry of Jesus, and uh, Jesus' great signs and miracles that he worked were not simply, um, they weren't simply a, a, a circus or a show of marvels or something like that, simply to gain attention. They did demonstrate that he was sent from heaven and that, uh, and that he, God himself was at work here in the world. But they also are a picture of what God desires ultimately for his people, which is, to heal the brokenness of this world, to restore us forever, to provide for us uh, a feast that will never end so that we will never again hunger or thirst. There'll be no more tears, no more disease, no more warfare. Um, and Jesus comes into the world to rescue us from the tyranny of the devil and from all of this other brokenness in the world and to save us from our sin um, and his his uh, miracles are a sign of that, and Elisha um, kind of foreshadows, in that sense, the work of Jesus in a ministry of both words and signs.
0: Well, as as we speak about this, he heals the brokenhearted, he heals the sick. Um, and we're going to dig into that today. So let's get into the text. We are in Second Kings chapter five, and I wanted to start with verse one. To sets up a little bit of the context that you've already given us a little bit of. the reminder to our listeners, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version of Holy Scripture. Verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So, so, Doctor Egger, this tells us quite a bit. Can you give us some insights on Naaman and what's going on here?
1: Yeah, well, he's a he's an offic- he's a foreigner, uh, for starters, and he is a, uh, a commander in a foreign army. And all of the descriptions in this verse it's uh, it's amazing the way that the verse unfolds with all of this buildup. So he's a he's a commander of the army of the king of Syria. The word for commander is a very in the Hebrew is a very uh, a very high word. It's the word sometimes translated prince. Tsar is the word. The commander of the army of the king of Syria. And he was a great man with his master. He's highly favored by the king. And, and it's by him that the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. And uh, and the but there in the English, but he was a leper, um, is actually, uh, that conjunction actually in the original text is, is at the beginning of that sentence, but. And so it's really something like, and he was a mighty man of valor, and you don't find out he's a leper or that there's any surprise or contrast there until the very last word, and it just says, a leper. Uh-huh. And he was a mighty man of valor, a leper. So there's this, uh, and, and remember, we've been dealing in Second Kings with all of God's care for the small and the lowly and the weak and, um, and even um, the dead for the little ones. And now here's this great man, and how is he going to fit into the story? Well, we find out though he's great, he's a leper, and that one word undoes all of the rest. Right? Um, you can have everything, but if suddenly you are losing your health in a in a uh, um, a disease that's degenerative and just going to progressively grow worse and worse. Um, it's a pretty hopeless spot to be in and all of his highness and all of his favor and all of his greatness and strength and valor, all of it is being um, eaten away by this disease.
0: You know, that's a great insight because one word can tell you so much because you can, you can have all everything in the world and you just add leper and then it changes everything in the whole story. I mean, it really builds up a lot. Like you said, to the future now now i had i have some thoughts on this but what do you what what is leprosy do you have any insights on that
1: well there's a lot of debate on that in the ancient world and uh it's always interesting to me this particular text. I remember studying it some years back and and looking up in the Hebrew lexicon this word for leper that every every English translation translates leper and then leprosy later in the text. and the the Hebrew lexicon, the dictionary that explains in detail the Hebrew words, it had as its definition. A serious skin disease, comma not leprosy. <laughs> so oh. it's interesting that uh, they uh, and and medically um, there are there are distinctions between um, uh, you know different kinds of diseases that all get lumped under the name of leprosy, but um, but in the ancient world. Um, these serious skin diseases, they were, they were viewed and rightly viewed as contagious and um, dangerous. And so, um, to, to have such a disease, um, it had not only medical and, and health repercussions but very significant personal, social repercussions and uh, people really had to seal themselves off. And of course, uh, you've probably heard stories and our listeners have heard stories from the Bible and, and with the idea that the lepers would have to stand and kind of live on their own out on the edge of town or beyond the edge of town, would have to yell unclean when people approached. Now, a man of this kind of stature and favor he probably was not living on his own uh, outside of the city boundaries, as the story makes clear as it goes on. But he still, uh, with leprosy, would have had to um, really take a lot of precautions and and seal himself off in some ways.
0: And that's interesting. And it, and we see some of that because you look at Leviticus thirteen talks about the rules of. If you have leprosy, um, and and here's here's how this looks. And like you said, you even it's a little bit unclear what exactly is leprosy when you read Leviticus 13. But obviously, like you said, very much so, very contagious, very dangerous. Uh, Luke 17 that I mentioned before obviously shows that there were a lot of lepers just far away from normal society, mm-hmm. and and the people when someone had leprosy, they almost became the enemy. Um, not because of like, uh, scared of their sword or something, but they were the enemy because you could give me that disease and then therefore I'm in your same spot. So it really puts, yeah, we
1: we can identify with that a little bit, uh, after our experience of the last year, can't we? Uh, We This idea that human, human beings are, are, um, seem dangerous to us just by their approach.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I just kind of, I, I am glad and I, and I pray we don't go through this again, but just think about like Go for a walk and someone's coming towards you and the internal battle. I mean, usually it's an introverted battle, right? What do I say? What do I say? Now it's like, right, oh, right. I better go the other direction because that's a person.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so that gives us... Um, it gives us a little bit. Of, it gives us a big feel for this. Is here is a man strong and mighty in every single way. Even the Lord was with him in a foreign country. This shows us God is yeah. at work outside of Israel. Um, and then as yeah. that one word. So any last thoughts on verse one? We we'll make sure we're on the same page.
1: Yeah. Well, I, this won't necessarily be a theme that continues to get echoed, but I think it's very important uh, what you just said that the Lord had given victory to Syria that um, that it, God is not only the Lord of Israel and or now, I guess, in, in terms of the way we look at the world, God isn't only at work in the church, but he truly is the Lord of the universe. And he rules over history. He rules over all things. And he causes the rising and falling of nations, according to his will. And so um, this, this passage, just in that subtle way, in that one line, confesses that God is the Lord of history. He had given victory to Syria um, through the work of Naaman, the the army general.
0: Well, let's continue with that foundation. Let us read verses 2 through 5. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. So... As we hear these words, we hear of uh, probably the most unlikely of, uh, um, of messengers—a little girl from Israel. So, what's happening yes. in these verses?
1: Yes. Well, um, the first—the first detail there is that uh, the Syrians had been raiding Israel and uh, plundering Israel, even kidnapping their children. So they share a border with the northern kingdom of Israel. There, the nation of Syria does, and—and uh, and this was just. Regular practice in the ancient world. If, uh, might makes right, and if you had a military advantage, uh, it would be pressed. And if you lived in a small village in northern Israel, anywhere near the border, you would live in constant dread and fear. Uh, a little bit, I suppose, like in uh, in uh, ancient England when the Viking raiders would come in. Um, so. Naaman here, he's, he's now being portrayed not only as a great man and not only as a leper, but he's associated with these bitter enemies of Israel. Uh, so he's the enemy of God's people. And, uh, and he's a, a kidnapper, or at least a, 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 the purchaser of a slave who, who had been kidnapped from her own home and homeland and, uh, and carried off into Syria. And she has been brought into the service of Naaman's wife. She's in his household. And she is going to be the agent of, of God's um, mercy and good news here. She is going to point him kindly in the right direction, even though she's a, a victim of atrocities, in a sense. Um, she she acts in love. And I love the way that the, the narrative describes her just simply as a little girl, mm. And that adjective little can be translated, could also be translated young. She's a young girl. But I like that the ESV translates it little because um, because Naaman himself, the very first description of him is that he, after it says he's the commander of the army, it says he's a great man, an Ish-gadol, whereas she is a little girl, a ra ketana, uh, And those are just, uh, plain adjectives, big and small. Basically, they they translated. He was a big man, and she was a small girl, <laughs> and uh, and and yet, who really is the the hero in this story? Who is really the one that is doing the Lord's mighty work in the world? And it's this little girl who testifies to the hope that's in the God of Israel by pointing uh, Naaman to uh, to this man of God who is who is in uh, who is in um, Samaria here in the Northern kingdom. Samaria is a city in in the Northern kingdom of Israel. So, uh, so she says to him, uh, would, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he could do something about it. And what's, what's really amazing is the way that, uh, that God works through that word of invitation, uh, and encouragement spoken by this little girl mm-hmm. in Naaman's heart enough that he takes it seriously. Um, his, his wife uh, um, his wife tells him what the little girl said, and Naaman goes in and tells his lord, and, uh, and they actually take this seriously, and, and you could say, in a sense, faith is already beginning.
0: And what's interesting with this is that from there, he brings him with him, and this is a political move, you know, that's always a tension that we see in, in 1st, 2nd Kings. You know, I was going to say this, too. The stories we hear from now through chapter seven is a nice respite from the kings. You know, I'm kind of sick of hearing how this king took over and he was evil. And this is kind of a nice respite from all of that. But you see a lot of political work here um, because he brings silver and gold and clothing and all of this expecting that this prophet would want payment just like you would in a government affair. Um, You know what? And, And Dr. Egger, I want to talk more about that after our break. We need to take our break. We are studying 2 Kings chapter 5 with Dr. Thomas Egger, and we'll be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. And Welcome back. We are studying 2 Kings chapter 5 with Dr. T- Thomas Egger of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. And as we left at our break, it was, I didn't want to cut it off. I wanted to talk about a little bit was um, there's a little bit of political action here that, okay, if you are going to make a deal with the other governments and Khalid, that he's going to send a letter, the king of Syria is going to send a letter to him, hey, uh, send this guy, uh, have him be healed, whatever it might be. But also, is there kind of a theological, like, oh, we'll pay these guys off and they'll do this work for me? How would you break that down for us today, Dr. Eager?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think you've set the stage very well there for thinking about that, that uh, section of the text. Here are great men great and powerful men who are going to get the work done through their great power and influence. So he goes to the king and the king sends kingly gifts and kingly wealth to take care of the situation and to manipulate it. And, uh, and he thinks that that will do the trick. And, of course, it's, a, it's also a, a sign of his commitment and love uh, for Naaman. Um, so here's the, this king who really is – he really does have favor in the eyes of the king. The king is sending uh, this letter, and, and, uh, and Naaman is bringing uh, all of this wealth. It doesn't really say whether the wealth came from the king or from Naaman himself. could have been either. Um, but uh, it's very significant wealth, ten talents of silver, is an amazing quantity of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and uh, ten. And then we think, and ten changes of clothing. But these would have been very ornate and probably bejeweled uh, uh, clothing with silver thread. Who knows? Um, but uh, it would have been very expensive and uh, and well-wrought clothing. And so he brings all of this along with the political influence of the letter. And again, it's a picture of. Um, it's a picture of greatness trying to make greatness's way. And what will be found as the story goes on is um, none of that is what will ultimately um, give Naaman what he is seeking and what the Lord wants to give to him. It will be found in lowliness and in simple word and, and simple washing and, and, and at the, as, a, as a gracious gift from God through his prophet and, and through his word. So all of this greatness—it reminds me a little bit of uh, too. Uh, this isn't so much a political analogy, but the story of the prodigal son mm. who goes off and uh, squanders all of his father's wealth. So he doesn't have any wealth to bring back to his father, but he comes back with this big game plan. Remember right. of how he's going to approach the father. I will, you know, I'll, I'll humble myself and apologize and say I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men, etc. He's going to. He has this whole. Bargaining planned out, but when he actually returns, none of that is going to count for anything. It's just the father's welcome and and the father's graciousness that will carry the day.
0: And I like how you're. There is definitely this theme of God working through the low, or working for the lowly. But also here mm-hmm. we're seeing it kind of turn around a little bit that God is working through the lowly things yes. in order to do His yes. work. And I found that that's a fascinating. Um, Reality, because we see the 10 talents, we see the 6,000 shekels. And as you said, uh, those 10 changes of clothes is different than my cargo pants that I wear (laughs) on a normal day, cargo shorts, excuse me. Um, But definitely all those great things, and God yet will only work through those small little things. Anything else before we move on, Pastor? No, I think that's good. Okay, let's move to verses 6 and 7. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So, okay, so the king of Israel kind of, uh, he's not real excited to get this letter. What's going on?
1: this is a great the great part of the story and i always it's always interesting to me to just think of um how the the inspired writers of the holy scripture though they're they're doing the most serious thing in the world recounting the stories of god for all generations to hold on to They also at times um, just seem to delight in telling those stories well and in interesting ways, even in humorous ways. And it really is uh, kind of a fun or funny element of this story to to put yourself as the reader into the shoes of the Israelite king. He gets this letter, and just the way that the king has decided to— to phrase the language uh, here when this letter reaches, you know that I have sent you name and my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. <laughs> well, that's a pretty tall order. It doesn't matter how, how much gold is in the wagon. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and so the King's, uh, the King's reaction makes perfect sense. Am I God to kill and make alive? No one can, no one can cure leprosy. Uh, no human being can cure leprosy it is certainly in that day. And, uh, and so, uh, um, he he says to himself, "Something's afoot here. Um, it must be that he's he's trying to to uh, put me in some political, uh, um, back me into a corner in some way, or seek a quarrel with me, provoke a war, even." And uh, and so that was a fearsome thing and a troubling thing. And so he tears his clothes. Uh, it's interesting. The tearing of clothes is a is an outward expression of being greatly troubled or grieved. It was, uh, it was sometimes the proper reaction of those who received warnings from a prophet. So sometimes when the prophet would send word, people would rightly tear their clothes um, at the warnings of the prophet in repentance. At other times, God would rebuke people because they didn't tear their clothes. There's a famous story in a in Jeremiah 36, of God sending word through Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch to the to the king in Jerusalem at the time, and as the as the scroll of the warnings are being read in his presence, he takes out a penknife and he tears line after line off the scroll of the prophet's words and throws it into the fire. And God rebukes him strongly because he tore God's word, but he didn't tear his clothes, which is what he should have done. But here's the, the king of Israel who's quaking in fear of a foreign king. And, uh, and um, uh, it, it basically represents uh, uh, an improper reaction. Here's a, a king that should be humble before the Lord, fear him only, but also trust in him. But instead, all he can see in this situation is his own uh, vulnerability. And uh, Elijah is going to correct that uh, in the following verses. It's interesting to me,
0: too, that, um, well, first of all, my my first thought was tearing of the clothes. I think of Job, when he loses everything and he tears his clothes. And in Job chapter 1, tore his robe and shaved Mm -hmm. his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. And so I thought of that as a, as a form of, I guess you say, repentance and, and worship. And But here, you know, he tears his clothes and he just kind of laments, not to God, but in general, like, oh my gosh, my life is over. He doesn't pray to the Lord. Lord, help me. It, it, well, unfortunately, yeah. it sounds like a typical Israelite king in first and second kings as
1: he goes right. through it.
0: Right. So I found that interesting too, as you say that, that clearly there was concern because the story begins with the raid of Israel that obviously Syria was a, um, a threat. There's something for them to be worried about, but also once again, the time when rubber hits the road, they don't pray to the Lord. Um, the Israelite King looks to himself and says, well, I I guess I don't know what to do. I'm going back to war, I guess. And it's all, I, 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 Mm -hmm. me, me, me. So any thoughts on that? Yep.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great observation. And, uh, and, and even, even when he says, am I God to kill and make alive, he, he, doesn't, um, he doesn't respect the fact or recognize the fact that, yes, God alone can kill and make alive. But God has actually shown his power to do that in Israel and for Israel through his prophet, Elisha. In fact, just in the last chapter, he has, he has made alive. He's allowed the boy to die, but he has made him alive through his prophet. And, um and so the king should have thought to send naaman to elisha the little girl did right the little girl in the opening verses says there's a prophet in Samaria who can help but the king um, the king doesn't make that good confession or that that um, witness and uh, and testimony to this lost and hurting person of where help can be found. He doesn't, he doesn't point him to the prophet. He doesn't point him to, uh, to the source of help.
0: Now, this is interesting because I want to take a, a little bit of a, a stop here. and I, Dr. Edgar, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, as we hear to this point through verse 7, there's practical realities for our own lives. Um, and as a pastor, uh, because you, you're still a pastor, you know, you, you, you serve in the parish and you still serve the community you're at. What applications does this have for us today? The, the, the first part of this text.
1: Yeah. Well, I think of it, uh, I think of two things, especially. One is that no one is beyond the reach of, of God's care and concern. No foreigner. Uh, so, a lot of times we will, uh, we're always kind of drawing lines um, in our hearts about who we should care about and really be concerned about. But also, I think in more subtle ways, we draw lines in terms of who we think would really be interested in God <laughs> or interested in Jesus, their Savior. Uh, who who realistically is actually um, a prospect for being reached by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And though we know Jesus died for all, though we believe that God works through his word, that his spirit uh, is a, the great power to open the, eye, the, the eyes of the blind to faith in their Savior— um, we believe that in our heads, but I think oftentimes in subtle ways, we just kind of think that some people are just beyond that. And I think two categories of people that, that, we, um, that we assume that might be the case for, um, one is great people, um, really high and influential and sophisticated and wealthy people, we would think, ah, they're probably not that interested in a savior. Um, and uh, and the other is is foreigners, people who are not like us. Um, and and uh, um, and I think uh, this is a story that reminds us that God's love is for all, for the high, for the low, for Israelites, for non-Israelites. Um, and then I think th- another good lesson here is just um, the power of a simple testimony. Um, this girl did not have a long and complicated. Um, witness to the God of Israel, his promises, his power, his character, um, his plans for the salvation of the world. She simply said, I think you can get help from the man of God who is in Samaria, from the prophet who's in Samaria. She she basically, uh, she basically invited Naaman to church, you might say. And, uh, and, and, and it may seem seem like an unlikely uh, unlikely invitation uh, t- to bear much fruit, um, but here's a little girl who just innocently and and hopefully speaks it, and um, God takes it from there, and God Himself does it work through her words.
0: And that's a great reminder for us because you're right; we do tend to say, "Well, we're just going to have to that." person. And we all have that person. This is not trying to make a political statement, but we have certain mm-hmm. kind of people that we're just like, it's just, it's not doing any good. You know, it can be the, um, the family member who's never gone to church. It can be that neighbor that has no interest and been very mean or, or whoever it might be. We all have our list. And, and here is mm-hmm. nobody's beyond the grace of God and, and the Holy spirit can always work in their lives. Um, and mm-hmm. it can be as simple as this, like you said, so well too, all she said is, I think that guy over there can help you. And it brings me back to Second Kings three, when you have the king of Israel, a king of Judah. Um, they're you know, they're gaining the forces, and then they they talk about, well, oh, Jehoshaphat's like, I think we might need a someone from the Lord to talk to right now. I don't know about this. And they go to Elijah right? and they say, This is the word of the Lord is with him. And it doesn't mean that they understood um, you know, all the the tenets of who Yahweh was. It doesn't mean that they understood everything that was going on. They just say, No, I think. That person can help me. And sometimes we need to just let that be what it is and say, okay, let's work with what the Lord is giving us as opposed to hoping that they already know what communion means and that they got the small catechism memorized and all this. I mean, I'm speaking about myself. I it, Very easy for me to judge and not be patient, but you know what? The Lord sure is patient with us and therefore we should right. as well. Any thought? other thoughts? Right.
1: Well, maybe just one short comment, and and this is maybe more of a subtle thing um, to draw out of this, but just the fact that this little girl who had been kidnapped from her home mm-hmm. works such good in God's providence, and we cannot begin to understand God's governance of the world, why he allows such horrible things into life. You know, why does he allow leprosy? Why does he allow the kidnapping of children? If you're an Israelite reader of this story in Old Testament times, um, you, you would hear that about uh, she had been captured by raiding parties, and, and you might be able to viscerally identify with what devastation that brings to a family. Um, and, and yet, out of this mess of brokenness, God is working his plans um, and they are gracious plans. And, you know, why he doesn't just make it all sunshine and roses? <laughs> um, well, that's our fault, right? We're the ones who have broken the world, but God is putting it back together again. And he is, he is um, powerful enough and wise enough to work even through the most devastating situations. And so when we are faced with grief and just with dismay, and we, we want to shake our hand at God and say, why are you running the world the way that you are? Um, we, along with that, can also um, take hope from stories like this uh, that just give us little glimpses of the fact, um, kind of like, you know, the story of Joseph uh, with his brother selling him to slavery. What, what you intended for evil, God intended for good and for the saving of many lives. We can't always see the positive parts of um, all of the pain and the brokenness in the world, but God promises that somehow in his wisdom and power, he is wrapping up all of these things that seem so purposeless and painful into into gracious, saving purposes for the world.
0: Well, let's continue on as we see, literally see God putting it back together. So let's go verses 8 through 12. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So, uh, okay. So what happens is it seems like, Oh, here's the instructions, but what does
1: Naaman do with these words? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, he makes his way to the prophet with his horses and chariots, right? So he's the big man there. He's standing at the door of Elijah's house and the message is very simple. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And, uh, he just, it's just not what he was expecting. It's too small, right? It's too small. It's too simple. It's too unimpressive. It's too dirty. Uh, it's just not the illustrious, big, dramatic, powerful um, kinds of, kind of cleansing that he, that, that name and the great man expected. And so uh, he's, he feels like he's humbled himself enough to show up to this mighty religious man, this man of God, uh, uh, and, and he thinks the least that he can do is come out and be dramatic and, uh, and powerfully religious, right, and, and to do some impressive religious ceremony, uh, and, uh, and it just doesn't make sense to him. It's, uh, it's simple. It's clear uh, what he's asked to do. But it just does not make sense to him why that should have to be the case, um, and uh, and yet that's that's what the, that's what Elisha had offered him from the Lord, and it was a, a gracious offer. It was a it was a um, God's plan to give him new life, and yet unbelief hears that and is angered by it, and so at this point he simply cannot and will not believe that word of promise, and it angers him that, uh, that God would want to help him or that this man of God would want to help him in that way.
0: As it says here so well, um, could I not wash them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a range. Or he says, excuse me, n- that, that the name of the Lord is God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So basically he's mm-hmm. saying this is how God should act. You know, this is what you yeah. do. This is what God does. Let me tell you what God should do, and and how much of a tendency is that for us as Christian people?
1: Yeah, oh, well, absolutely. Um, I just just was listening to a podcast last night and and uh, heard some people um, kind of denigrating Christianity uh, because we have uh, we have a story of salvation in in which and a, in a uh, an account of salvation in which God lays upon his son the sins of the world and causes him to suffer divine judgment so that the rest of us can be spared and they said how much better would it be to just have a god who just says i'll just look the other way i'll just forgive i don't need any sacrifice i don't need the suffering of jesus christ for the salvation of the world Um, and they were opining about how much more kind and compassionate and even just that would be. And I just uh, remember thinking to myself, being so sad listening to that conversation, um, the salvation of the world is not something that you and I can decide, oh, we think it should be this way, or we think it should be that way. The savior is the one who has saved us and he's done it in the way that he has. And, uh, Presumably, that was the only way that it could be. But in any case, we certainly aren't in any position to dictate to him how he should forgive damnable sinners. Uh, And so uh, uh, we, too, can be offended um, um, not just about things like the simplicity of uh, God's forgiveness in baptism, which is an obvious connection with this story, but we can even be offended at... At the suffering and death of Jesus Christ Himself for our salvation, and many people are in our day. They think that's a brutal and a, and a, a, a kind of old-fashioned or primitive, primitive way of of uh, thinking about a God's relationship with the world. And we have somehow uh, grown beyond that. But God spare us from ever growing beyond uh, a simple trust in and joy in the way that God has chosen to save us in his son, Jesus, through his death and resurrection. It
0: goes into that mentality, which is clearly there for Naaman, is that there's a better way to do this and efficient this is a a a way that you know if if i were god so we make god into our image as opposed to he makes us his and his in in christ and and it's, it's really fascinating because you can see as you said this podcast is basically speaking like naaman um yeah you know what that water over there is much better than the water over here you know The Mississippi River or the Missouri River? You know, we talk about St. Louis, and you're like, which one is better? I'd rather do in the Missouri or whatever it might be. And the reality is, um, you know, when Jesus is on that cross, uh, it's there, and this is why it's offensive. He's there because of my sin, because of my brokenness, and he had to go there for that purpose. And like you said, that's what we need, not necessarily what we want. So let's, let's, mm-hmm. let's finish this off. We have about five minutes left, and we have just the last two verses. And I want us to wrap around and not only show us what happened here, but what does this mean for us today? Verse 13. Right. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So kind of going back to what you've been saying this whole time that God works through the lowly and kind of lowly things. I mean, if this water wasn't very clean, well, it wasn't real exciting to be cleaned in. But what, what, and here he is, working through the lowly, working his way in a simple way, and how what, what's happening in these last two verses?
1: Yeah, well, it, I love his friend's words, so they're trying to talk him into sense. This is uh, this is kind of like the uh, the encouragement of the faithful or the the uh, the. Uh, um, Mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren, or something like that. But our Lutheran confessions talk about just encouragement in faith. Now, these may have not been even believers, uh, but but uh, these may have just been his his uh, disgruntled and dismayed servants that thought we traveled all the way here, and he gets a piece of advice, and he's not even going to follow it. But in any case, uh, their words are helpful, and uh, and what they say is really significant, I think, uh, and and I. Think again, the way the story is told for us here by the inspired writer really makes a point. It uses this language of size again. And just like at the beginning of the story, Naaman is a great man, a big man. The same word is used now here. My father, it is a great word uh-huh. the prophet has spoken to you. Literally, it's a big word. So he was treating it like this was, this was a small and crazy word. Uh, but in fact, it's a pretty big word. And they, they sum it up by saying, he said, wash and be clean. That's a big thing. And, uh, and so he does it and, uh, and the word of God accomplishes its purpose. Uh, and notice the, uh, again, the, the combination here of word and washing word and water. And there's the promise wash and be clean That's the great word that's at work here. And then there's the washing itself. And it really is a a beautiful foreshadowing of God's work for us in baptism, the theology of what happens to us in our baptism. God works through water to make clean here. He makes a leper clean for us. He cleanses us from the stain and the leprosy of sin. Uh, The New Testament uses uh, leprosy as an analogy for sin in places. And, uh, God um, makes us like a little child, uh, a newborn child. And the way that the story ends, he's clean, but he's also likened to a little child. So Naaman, has he started as the big man, but he ends the story as a little child. And if you think about um, the way that Jesus talks about entry into the kingdom of heaven, um, unless a man is born again by by water and the word, he cannot... uh, uh, he cannot be uh, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, or Jesus says, unless uh, unless one becomes like a little child, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, here's this picture of both restoration um, in terms of the flesh of a little child, right? Like baby soft skin or something mm-hmm. like that. But it also, I think, um, indicates something uh, internally for him as well. His flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Um, Naaman has become born again. He has become um, a believer, and he expresses his faith then in, in the, the story that will follow.
0: Dr. Eger, we have about 30 seconds left. How would you wrap this up for us today and, and what it means for us today?
1: Yes. Well, um, maybe just to comment on that last word, to be clean. Um, There's such a mess uh, going on in this story. Um, But now um, the sick has become healed. The unclean has become clean. This foreigner has become a child of God. And all of this is the same, the same saving work that God has been about from the beginning to the end of the world, calling people to trust in his promise that ultimately um, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, in his word coming to us, in our baptism into Jesus Christ, he makes us new and he makes us clean.
0: Dr. Thomas Egger, president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, giving us the good word from Second Kings chapter 5. Dr. Egger, thank you for being our guest.
1: Thank you, Brady. My pleasure.
0: Saints of our Lord, as Dr. Egger said, might makes right. That's how we operate in the world. But as we see in this story, God not only works for the lowly, but he uses lowly things in order to do the great work. And as the the men said to Naaman, uh, this man has a great word. And that great word always points us to the word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. And to that we cling and that is our hope. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.